Our reading this morning is Galatians 5, 1 through 18. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision have any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want to. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. This is the Word of God. Uh, well, and if you join us, we've been saying week by week for a number of weeks that uh, the book of Galatians then, uh, a letter written by the Apostle Paul in the first century, and uh, the main issue he's addressing throughout the letter is a false teaching. And the false view of Christianity goes a bit like this, that you place your faith in Jesus Christ. That's a good place to start. Then secondly, you add obedience. There are a number of laws that you have to keep to maintain the Christian life, to mature in the Christian life. And if you have those two things, faith plus obedience equals salvation. And Paul is written to say that is not the case. Faith in Jesus Christ, that is salvation. Stop. Now, if you have that sort of faith in Jesus Christ that is confidence in salvation, oh, it'll lead to obedience. It'll issue forth in that. Yes, of course. But it's not faith plus obedience equals salvation, but faith in Christ, that's salvation. That's all you need. Faith in him alone. And uh, last week, we started then to uh, address the issue, okay, that's good. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, but if that's the case, 
how do you live the Christian life? And it's the sort of question that certainly people who are looking in often ask. Uh, Wednesday nights, Christianity Explored, people will start to get this sort of idea and ask, well, if that's true, why would I follow God? I'll just trust in Jesus and then do whatever I wanted, wouldn't I? What, if I've got that sort of freedom, if I trust in Jesus Christ, I'll know I'll go to be with God in eternity. I can do what I want, can't I? And the, do you see the issue? It's a very obvious way of thinking. I read uh, uh, recently William Hague, Foreign Secretary, was irritated uh, and uh, promising to do something about diplomatic immunity. Now, if you have that here this morning, many congratulations. You're one of uh, 25,000 people in the UK who is uh, granted diplomatic uh, immunity. But uh, William Hague was irritated because he's saying, look at some of the crimes that have been committed under diplomatic immunity without any prosecution. So there's been uh, sex assault, actual bodily harm, uh, human trafficking, death threats, drunk driving. None of them prosecuted because they've all got immunity. And, of course, the one that Boris loves to talk about, uh, unpaid congestion charges to the tune of £36 million a year. It's a lot of money. Um, all of those, because these people say, well, we're free. We have immunity. The, the government will not prosecute us because of our little number plates on our cars and whatever. whatever what do you get? What do you get? You can get a special badge or something. I don't know what you get. But uh, because we've got immunity, they won't prosecute us. And you see the sort of issue people, and some in this region, Galatia, were thinking that, hold on, hold on. If we have this sort of freedom, we can do what we want, can't we? Why, why bother listening to anything else God has said? And that's the issue, and we started to have a little look at it last week. Uh, but we said uh, very clearly, Paul is saying no. So let me, uh, 13 to 18, we're really looking at today. Verse 13, you, my brothers, brothers, were called to be free, yes, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Do not say, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Don't do that. Use your freedom to serve people. Use your freedom to love. So that's the particular issue of this morning. How then, biblically, do we love people, if you're a Christian? How do you grow that sort of community, society? Now, lots of people have tried to develop sort of loving societies. Broad brush, caricature, I think of two ways people have done that. We want a, a loving society, and you could be a communist, and so you could be Joseph Stalin, say, right, comrade, we want, a, we want a society where we're comrades, and we love one another, so what should we do? How should we generate that? Well, the, the most obvious way, 1934, December, uh, the terror laws. So we'll terrify or will legislate everyone into loving one another. If you're not loving enough, well, we'll send you off to Siberia and uh, away you go. Uh, but everyone else, are you loving? Are you loving? Are you loving? Well, yeah, maybe, and if not, uh, you get thrown away. You can try and legislate people into love. That's one way. Not wildly successful. Uh, the other way will be a sort of a free love. So if that's a sort of Joseph Stalin way, you could have a, a Jim Morrison way. Let's Come on, baby, let's, you know, take some drugs, get a bit higher, and uh, love. We can love, can't we? Just love. I mean, goodness knows, I mean, let's have lots of 
drugs and alcohol and sexual partners and love and will make the world a better place until you die tragically very young. So they sort of legislate to love or free love. Neither of those ways have ever really done it. And in a sense, Paul is wanting to counteract both of those same mistakes. So it is the false teachers in Galatia who said, listen, if you want people to behave, what you need to give them is a good dose of law. Just give them, a, if we create some really good rules, we can legislate people into love. And throughout the letter, he's been saying, no, no, the way to Christian maturity is not through imposing external laws. It's not. But on the other hand, now he's saying equally, don't drift to the other extreme and think, well, I'm free. I'll just love. I'll drift into love. And I'll, I'll just drift into loving people. It'll just, just happen that way. Also not true. So the freedom, Paul is saying, it isn't just a freedom from any ethical norms. He's quite happy to give laws, actually. So verse 14, the entire law is summed up like this. Love your neighbor. He's quite happy to give a command. Look, you want to know what love looks like? It looks like this. This law. Uh, and then really 5.13 all the way to the end of the letter, or certainly six chap- uh, chapter 6, verse 10. He's giving lots of instructions. This is how you live. Lots of commands or laws. Nothing wrong with them in the right place. And do you remember we said last time, love is not optional in the Christian life. Do you remember just uh, back over the page, chapter 5, verse 6? Regulations, they're neither high nor there. Um, Chapter 5, verse 6, neither circumcision, uncircumcision, they're neither here nor there, they have no value. The only thing that counts is faith, yes, but expressing itself through love. A genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ, it will issue in love. It's not optional. That's normal if you're a Christian trusting in Jesus Christ. It's, It's meant to happen. So Paul is wanting to avoid these two extremes. Don't, you can't legislate people into love. But people won't just drift into it on their own accord. The answer? Well, it's living by the Spirit. And uh, that's what we're on again today. Uh, three little things to say. Uh, there's a negative and a positive and then how we do it. So the, the negative, don't indulge your sinful nature. Do love one another is the positive. And we'll see how. Well, that's living by the Spirit. So uh, let's work through them so we understand. What, what, what does Paul mean? I mean, I've heard this before. You've heard this before if you've been a Christian for a while. How do you live the Christian life? By the Spirit, which means, well, we'll make some progress this week. First thing he's clear on then, a negative. Don't indulge your sinful nature, verse 13. You, my brothers, are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Or flesh, you can see the footnote uh, is uh, how it gets translated elsewhere. Now what Paul means by that is our, our, the sinful part of us, the sin-desiring elements within us, the, the sinful part of our heart, it's inside us, our sinful nature. We all have one, it's natural, it's instinctive, we'll have it until the day we die. The part of us which wants to do the wrong things. And so um, we'll look at it next time. But verse 19 explains the sort of things that the sinful nature wants to do and will do if it's left unchecked 
I mean, they're obvious, he says, verse 19, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, and so on and so forth. We'll drift that way naturally unless our nature, our sinful nature, is unchecked. So verse 13, he says, don't use your freedom to indulge that. Literally, don't use your freedom to become a a base for, a bridgehead for your sinful nature. It's a military term uh, that uh, Paul uses literally in the Greek. It's the base from which you venture forth. A friend of mine uh, in the army was in Camp Bastion in Afghanistan for a while, you know, the big central allied uh, British, it's American uh, run now, uh, base in uh, Helmand province. And when they're in Bastion, they were fine. They were fine. It's heavily fortified. But on a regular basis, they'd take their sorties out and go out on missions. They would use the base to venture forth. And um, without the base, they'd have been completely exposed and um, picked off. But the base was their place of safety. And from there, they could venture forth on these dangerous missions. So what Paul is saying here is, don't use your freedom as an excuse. I mean, lots of the things in verse 19, they're obviously bad. The sinful nature, sexual immorality, rage, uh, drunkenness, orgies, selfish ambition. Those are not, those are, if you're a Christian, people would recognize those are not good things to do. But don't use freedom as a refuge. See, I guess it's the sort of attitude which says, um, look, don't, don't tell me off for going and getting drunk. I'm a Christian, I'm free. My freedom protects me. Don't tell me I shouldn't have an affair. I'm a Christian, I'm free. Jesus has forgiven me. Don't tell me I shouldn't be selfish. I'm free. I can do what I want as a Christian. Jesus tells me so. Jesus tells me I'm forgiven. Don't use your freedom as a a base you can retreat to, to protect you. Don't abuse your freedom in that sense. That's not the freedom you have, says Paul. I can go off in many, many different directions. It seems verse 15, the presenting issue in Galatia was um, quarreling. So verse 15, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed. That's very striking language, verse 15. If you want to be a part of a church or any community where they are biting and devouring each other, it's the language of um, a sort of a pack of hungry animals, isn't it? Have you ever seen a feeding frenzy? Not children at a tea party, or a real, you know, a real sort of animal. I could think of one I've seen. I went, years ago, I went to a crocodile farm, as you do. A crocodile farm, and uh, basically a, a succession of rivers, and it came to feeding time, which was the big show, because most of the time crocodiles just sort of, you know, they sit there lazy. Uh, but um, uh, feeding time, and so the handlers, I mean, they didn't handle anything, but anyway, the handlers threw in these big old joints of meat into the river, and uh, of course all the crocs, 
and uh, the water churns up and they're frenzied and uh, the bloke on the microphone is saying, oh, look, and if you'll observe, they're a bit stupid, the crocs, and sometimes they'll be biting one another and eating one another because they get a bit confused about what's meat and what's not meat. And you're watching this and blood is spreading through the water and you, he's very calm, he's seen it all before. And it was a, a feeding frenzy. These are hungry creatures and so they'll fill themselves on anything. They'll bite another croc until they realize that's not so tasty as a rump steak or whatever is thrown into the water for them. And Paul is saying, look, people can behave like that. I mean, not literally. But I think he's saying here, if, um, if spiritually you are hungry, that is, if you have not filled yourself with God, if you have not lent fully upon Jesus Christ, as none of us do perfectly, but if you're not leaning upon him, then you'll fill yourself with other things. And you'll, you'll get pleasure from establishing your superiority to other people. So I guess it goes a little bit like this. Someone, someone lets you down. They don't call you when you're expecting it. They don't visit you when you're expecting it. And you could then rage against them quietly in your own heart, in your own head. But you're really annoyed with them. They've let you down. And there's anger and there's aggression. And you just, oh, they've let you down. Or, or, by contrast, if you're filled, if you filled yourself with God, found your satisfaction in him, then you think, that's disappointing. That's disappointing. I forgive them. It's not, it's not the end of the world. I can forgive them. Or, uh, I guess, someone is rude to you, either wittingly or unwittingly. Um, you can't quite work it out. They're so rude, they don't even know if they're being rude. Uh, someone is rude to you. And again, you can either rage vocally against them or rage inside and bite and devour them. You could even almost literally do that in your head. You can imagine punching them or something in your head and have a little daydream with it. You can rage. Or, or if you're satisfied... If you have your contentment, you've, you've lent on Jesus Christ fully, you think, that was a bit silly. But I can forgive them. I can forgive them. And so I think that's Paul's point here. If you're, if, if you're biting and devouring one another, it's because you're, you're, you're trying to assert your superiority. You're trying to prove your status against people. You haven't, the gospel's not really got into you very deeply at that point. So don't do that. Don't indulge your sinful nature. But by contrast, serve one another. The positive uh, half of it. So do serve one another is the flip side. Verse 13. Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. It's very striking, isn't it? We, we saw last time, Jesus Christ has saved you from slavery, saved you from servitude in order to serve. You've been saved from servitude to the law, servitude to try and establish your own moral worth, servitude to try and earn your way to heaven. You've been saved from all of that, but you're now a servant of other people in love. Very striking. Indeed, verse 14, the entire law is summed up in this way, in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Question. Okay, Paul. Do you want us to keep God's law? Are we meant to do that? Should we obey God's rules instructions? 
And the answer, it's twofold. The answer is no, not in order to be saved or accepted, not in that way, not in order to um, persuade God to like you, but yes, as a response, yes, as a way of focusing your love, yes, as a way of expressing your love, yeah, that would be a good way to do it. Oh, yes, quite right. But motive is everything. Not from an obligation, I have to do this or I'm in trouble. I have to do this or God won't love me. Not from that, but I want to do this. I want to. The love he's speaking of is, it's not produced by the stiff upper lip. You don't just grind out this love. It's an overflowing of what God has done for you. Now, the best illustration I've ever heard of this is a little bit twee, so just run with it. But um, it's uh, from a friend of mine, his mother, Mrs. Grant. So it's an old friend, dear friend, so I grew up with Mrs. Grant, and uh, in days gone by, I've spent time uh, in the household of Mrs. Grant. And Mrs. Grant, I mean, she's now in her 70s, and a great heroine of the faith, and still prays more than anyone I know. She is a little eccentric. So Mrs. Grant always used to... Um, make tea as a very English woman. She's a vicar's wife, so you should make a good cup of tea. And, um, but whenever she made tea, she'd um, always overfill the teapot without fail. So uh, she'd come in, teapot on tray. I haven't got a tray. Sorry, one prop. That's about it. Um, she'd come in with it, and uh, it was always spill. She, you know, she's carrying it, particularly she got on. And uh, you know, this is always spilling over. Just as, and then she'd put the teapot down on the table, and then it would spill over. And then, cup of tea, dear. Oh, lovely. Um, yes, Mrs. Grant. So she'd pick it up and spill it. It would spill over. And eventually, I can't remember when, after I've been there years, uh, saying to her, Wendy, can I ask you, why do you always put too much water in your teapot? You always do that. Why do you do... She said, oh, she said, oh it's very simple, my dear. I, I do it to remind myself that what God has done for me He's filled me up with his grace and goodness so that I just spill out in kindness to other people. And if I'm not loving other people, I know my teapots run dry and I need to go to God to have my teapot filled up. Now it's, I mean, it's twee, isn't it? It's very sweet. But um, she, she certainly lived that way. And it's always really stuck with me quite vividly 20 years ago, whatever it was. And since that is utterly biblical, it is, again, chapter 5, verse 6, faith expressing itself in love. A faith in Jesus Christ that is so confident in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, so assured of the promise that I am a son, a child of God that loves me, that I am full of God's love, and it just spills out, it expresses itself. I know it's twee, naff, some of you would say, but profoundly true. Very helpful. It's the natural outflowing of God's work in our lives. Faith expresses itself in love. And now, what does that look like? Well, verse 14, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you've been a Christian or been in churches, for a number, that's a very familiar command, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. You may be much faster than me. I only really got that this week, I think. When I started sort of playing with different categories of where people are at in church. To love my neighbour as myself, what does that mean? That means that if someone is unemployed, I need to be as determined to get them into a job as I would be if I was unemployed. 
if someone is broke financially, I need to be as determined to resolve that as if I were broke financially. If someone is lonely, I need to do everything I can to address their loneliness in the way that I would if I was lonely. If someone is sick, I need to do everything possible to heal, comfort them in, as I would want to heal myself. And I thought, ah, oh, I'm quite a long way short of that. You know, my wife will wake up in the morning and say, I've got a headache, and, um, have you, uh, and that's it. And that's it, that's my wife. To love as self is an unbelievably high standard. Can you imagine what we'd be like if we were that sort of church, where we genuinely did it? Actually, you, you, you hear in the week someone, you know, someone's relative is, is unwell, and you care as much, you pray as much for them as you would do if, if it was yourself. That would be a stunning place to be, wouldn't it? To be part of that group of people. Absolutely stunning. Oh dear. <laughs> How do we do that? Last thing. How do we do that? Do we do it by the Spirit? Don't despair. If you think, oh, no way, we'll never manage that, never get close to that. No, not on your own. But the Christian life is not to be lived on our own. It is lived by the power of God dwelling within us, by his Spirit. Verse 16. So, I mean, I don't know why they, you know, cross out the, the line in the Bible. Um, so, how do you do this? So, I say, live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You will make progress towards loving your neighbor as yourself. You can't legislate love. You don't drift into love. No one drifts into loving their neighbors themselves. No one drifts that way. You do it by the Spirit. Now, let's make a start on this. Uh, uh, look at this in detail next week. But let's make a start, just these verses 16 to 18. How do we go about this? First thing to notice, it's God's work and our work. So verse 16, I say, live by the Spirit. Literally, walk by the Spirit. I say to you, walk by the Spirit. Now, how do you do that? If you wanted to walk, some, if you wanted to, walk to Green Park, I want to walk to Green Park. Well, how might you do that? Well, you might sort of... Move your legs, and you'd get up from your seat, and you might go for a walk. And it's no good sitting there thinking, I'd like to walk to Green Park. You've got to do it. I mean, there's, there's a, an action involved, of course. That, we're involved, certainly. But verse 18, led by the Spirit. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Now, led by the Spirit stresses it's God's initiative. His Spirit leads so perhaps a more accurate picture is, I want to go to Green Park. And the Spirit comes and takes our hand and pulls us out of our seat and holds our hand and takes us across to Green Park. Our legs have got to walk, but he is leading. It's his initiative. Now, how does he do that? And uh, if you've drifted, come back with me, because this is, this is my discovery. I've worked my way through the book of Galatians twice before without really getting this. I, I think I've got this, so I think this is good. How does the Spirit lead? I think on two prior occasions working through this book, I've simply said, 
You need to read your Bible and the Spirit will lead you. Now that is true, but I don't think it's good enough as an answer. That is true. How does the Spirit lead? Let me put it this way. It is when we delight in the promises of the gospel. The Spirit leads us as we delight in the promises of the gospel. Not just knowing, but delighting, being thrilled with what he's done. Let me, let me persuade you of this. Just uh, going back through uh, um, a few points in uh, Galatians that we've looked at. So chapter 2, verse 20. don't normally do this, but I want to flick back through the letter. I want to persuade you of this. Chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, how do you live it, Paul? How do you live the Christian life now? I live by faith in the Son of God. How do you live? What does it mean for you? How do you, what do you mean you live now? I live by faith. I live by trusting promises. I live by faith in what Christ has done and will do for me. Or I think the, the most helpful one is chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, which I think is as good a summary of the letter as you get. Chapter 3, verse 2. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? How did you initially receive the Spirit? Verse 2. Was it by grinding out obedience, external laws imposed upon you, or was it by believing what you heard? It was believing what you heard. It was faith in God's promises in the gospel, trusting the promises of the gospel. Or as we looked at last time, um, chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Chapter 5, verse 5, literally, by the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly await the righteousness of for which we hope. And then verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So you remember we said last time, the Spirit takes faith and uses faith to generate love or energize love, give power to love. So do you see throughout the letter what he's been saying? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It is believing, having faith in the promises of God. Delighting in the promises of God is to be led by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit. That's what it is. There's nothing particularly mysterious or or complicated about it. That is how the Spirit leads you. You delight in God's promises in the gospel. So, practically, what does that mean? It means I, I wake up each morning and say to myself, God accepts me as a son, as a child of his. I don't need to earn his acceptance. I don't need to persuade him to love me anymore. He loves me. And so at the end of the day, he doesn't say to me, how have you done? Have you earned my love today? I'm not sure if you have. He says to me, you're my son, I love you. You're my daughter, I love you. That's a promise. Or, and how do we go on living? We go on living as children, not slaves. Again, I don't obey any command in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament. I don't obey any of them because... I feel obliged to, or God might think less of me, or, or, or might not reward me in the same way. I do so primarily because he loves me. 
I am, chapter 4, a child, a son, adopted. I cannot lose that. And now I say to him, Father, I just want to be like you. I want to please you because I'm trusting that you love me already. Do you see? Live by the Spirit, verse 16, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. It's a promise. It's not a command. It's a promise. Live, delight in the promises of the gospel, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Last couple of things. You know, the, uh, the illustration that's often used for this, I think it's so old the apostles probably used it uh, when they were preaching. Uh, it's often used is um, uh, Greek mythology, the island of the sirens. You, you know this, the island of the sirens. The, uh, in Greek mythology, this island and the sirens were half woman, half bird. I'm not sure which way around. Um, but half woman, half bird. Uh, but beautiful voices. And they would sing. And any passing ship passing by the island would hear the music. And it was so exquisite, so beautiful, that they would sail towards the island, dash upon the rocks, and then these half woman, half birds would eat them up. Um, and uh, those are the sirens. And uh, so two great accounts in uh, Greek mythology of how do you get past uh, uh, the island. The first is Odysseus. Odysseus and his men are on their uh, way back home. They sail past the island of the sirens, and he gets all his men to shove wax in their ears, and they all stuff their ears with wax so they can't hear. They simply cannot hear the music of the sirens. He's a bit different. He straps himself to the mast. But anyway, essentially, they block themselves, so they, they bind themselves up, they, and, and they get by because they just can't hear the music. It's, it's okay, that works. Um, the better way presented is that of um, a Jason and the Argonauts. Because when they're on their way back from uh, having gained the, uh, the Golden Fleece, they're, they're, they're sailing back, and um, again, the music of the sirens starts up, and they say quickly, Orpheus, great musician, Play your lyre, whatever you do. Play your lyre. And uh, Orpheus plays and he sings and he's far more beautiful. Far more captivating than the sirens are. So yes, they can hear their, the sirens, but Orpheus, they hear more clearly, more attractive, so they just follow him. And of course, the point in the illustration is it, you, you listen to the music of the gospel Listen to the promises you have in Jesus Christ. Now, like every illustration, it's terrific but flawed because um, both the, the music is outside. For the Christian life, the battle is within. So you can't, you can't stuff your ears with wax when the issue is in your heart, the sinful nature. It just doesn't work. But what works biblically is your sinful nature says one thing but the spirit within you you give the spirit the promises of the gospel you believe and delight in the promises of the gospel and then you hear them so more clearly than you hear the temptings of the sinful nature so you live by the spirit and not gratifying the desires of the flesh um Time runs out. Let me give you one example. Jealousy, it's one of the, one of the issues there in the, in the text. Uh, jealousy, verse 19, is one aspect of the sinful nature. One example. You look around the church, and you're jealous. You look around, you're jealous of people. You're jealous of their popularity. They're effortlessly liked and loved, and um, everyone invites them. to. They're just, they're just really popular. Or they're incredibly wealthy, and they have a great house and great holidays and great cars and great everything. And you're jealous. 
Okay, well, that's the, the sinful nature, is rising up and giving jealousy to you. But you stop and say, no, no, I must walk by the Spirit. I'm going to delight in the promises of the gospel. I'm going to remind myself this morning, I have a father who loves me. I have a father who's given his son for me. And in every circumstance does what is best for me. And says, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm his child who he delights in. I say, okay, well, I don't need to be jealous of their popularity. God loves me. I don't need to be jealous of their money. God provides for me. I, don't, I just don't need those things. So the music of the gospel quietens the grumblings of the sinful nature. You live by the Spirit. So that's what it means, I think. That's how, we, that's how we become more loving. We live by the Spirit. We delight in the promises of the gospel. It's not... One says it's not complicated, but we need to do it. Delight in the promises of the gospel. There's nothing... There's no law that we can place upon us. We need to delight. We need to go and have our teapots filled. We need to listen to gospel promises and treasure them and trust them. We need to behold the man upon the cross and recognize what he's done for us and be thrilled by it. So we say, I want to please you. There's nothing more worthy of my life than living for you. Let me, uh, let me leave us in prayer. Father, you know the desires of our hearts, you know the things which uh, rise up within us, the aspects of our sinful nature that uh, we give into frequently. Would we hear more clearly than ever the promises of your gospel? Hear more clearly than ever that we are accepted and loved by you, and so treasuring those promises, would they quieten those aspects of our sinful nature that rise up? Would, they arouse, would the promises of the gospel arouse within us the desire to love you and love others in the strength that your spirit gives? Amen.